0: Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to read through to verse 34. We'll start at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while, he was, while he, he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So after stilling the storms of the Sea of Galilee and calming the storm of the Gentile tomb-dwelling demon-possessed man, who, who, whom we affectionately refer to as Crazy Dave last week, Jesus is now back on the Jewish side of the lake, probably back in Capernaum. And when he arrives, lo and behold, there are people waiting. And before you can say, leave me alone, I want to be by myself for a while, a crowd has already gathered. And of course, there are spectators, the ones who are there just because whatever uh, happens whenever Jesus is in town is always better than what is on the TV. And then there are the ones who want Jesus to do something or change something profound in their lives. But in this crowd, there are two that were singled singled out by Jesus that caught the eye of Simon Peter, who then told it to Mark, who wrote down this account. And these two could not have been more different. On the one hand you've you've got Jairus he's male which in those days was a big mark in his favor he's also the synagogue leader so he's probably well respected you know like a pastor respected admired looked up to probably put on a pedestal maybe even idolized Yeah thanks Julie you're the only one that that got that And Jairus also had a name. And he approaches Jesus from the front. He's got nothing to hide. And then there's this woman. She's a woman. Uh, She's also suffering from menstrual bleeding that she's had for 12 years. We're not exactly sure what was the problem, but we know that it was not good. In those days, this meant that she would have been ceremonially, ceremonially unclean all of the time. You can read more about the laws back in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 20 and onwards, but the long and the short is that anyone uh, who she touched or who touched anything that she sat on would be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for the whole day. So she would probably have been lonely. She would have been known to be that woman that you do not want to go near. So you just said something like, as. Nothing personal, you understand just that your very existence threatens my ritual cleaner. So if you were in those days, you'd have kept away from her as much as you could. Her existence would have been wretched for all of the time that she had this menstrual bleeding. And so she approaches Jesus from behind. She's hiding her face, She's probably cowering, hoping that no one recognizes her, praying that in the confusion of the crowd, uh, she would be concealed and uh, she would be able to make her sneak attack on Jesus. So two ends of the social spectrum, respected versus the outcast, the embraced versus the the avoided, the named and the, uh, the anonymous. Now Jairus would probably have studiously avoided this woman. He'd have planned his route home to avoid her house and she also likewise would have avoided Jairus. She knew her place in society and she knew that it was far from this man of God. But there was something that united these two, something that brought them, um, that brought them to within feet of each other on this fateful day, something that bound their fate together such that The one story cannot be told without the other story, and what united them was their desperation and the the thin shred of belief that perhaps Jesus could do something about their situation. They were united at the feet of Jesus. We know that uh, Jairus is in a panic. His daughter is n- near death's door. Somehow, he's managed to get Jesus's attention, and and it so happens that Jesus has has returned in time for Jesus perhaps to do something in Jairus' daughter's life, who's on death's door. And so Jesus and so Jairus manages to get Jesus's attention, and he makes his plea. He says, "This, my little daughter." Is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so they're wending their way towards Jairus' home, and you can almost imagine Jairus bouncing up and down with impatience. And every time Jesus makes eye contact with some unfortunate soul in the crowd, Jairus was like, Rabbi, this way over here my daughter who's nearly dead is over here she's probably taking her last breath about now hoping against hope that Jesus wouldn't be sidetracked from this task at hand every second counts and crowds are by nature low but at least they're moving forwards at least they're making headway then all of a sudden Jesus stops he turns to the milling crowd and he says who touched me which would be kind of like queuing up through the night for a Black Friday sale at your favorite store. You're getting ready, and then when the time comes and the doors open and the panicking staff retreat into the store ahead of this tidal wave of humanity, and so you're driving forward with 300 other people around you, and then all of a sudden you shout, hold on a sec, who touched me? It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Who's touching you? Everyone is touching you. But there's something that is different about this touch. This touch is different in nature, in type. It was the touch of faith. Only one fingerprint can open my smartphone. This smartphone is mine, and so the only fingerprint that can open it is my fingerprint. My phone only responds to one touch, and it's mine. You could push and pull and swipe all day long. Nothing would happen. But for me, it opens in a moment. It responds to my touch. And whatever it was about this particular touch that Jesus felt, he responded to it. He opened up. It was the right fingerprint And some of his power drained out, and he felt it. In fact, this woman didn't even touch Jesus. She only touched his clothes. That was all the courage that she could summon up. This woman was dwelling in the land of superstition. She was treating Jesus like he was some kind of a magic amulet or some angel trinket that, if she could touch, perhaps something good would happen. This woman had lived for 12 years with this isolating illness. She was cursed, she was lonely, she was unloved, she was unclean. Add on to that, the fact that she had gone to many doctors, as verse 26 tells us, and they hadn't helped. They had caused her suffering. They had made it worse. Have you ever been there where, where the cure that is recommended leaves you off, leaves you worse off afterwards than you were? Uh, before it, this is the story of this woman's life. There was no health care, so whatever money she had, which probably wasn't much because who would want to hire her, but whatever money she had, she spent on one quack after another. My, Michael Card tells us that in those days, one such cure for bleeding was to fish an oak grain out of a, out, out of cattle poop and force the patient to swallow it. When was the last time you swallowed a cow poo-flavored acetaminophen? This woman had had 12 years of that, and yet she reached out in shameful silence and touched the trailing fringe of Jesus' cloak, and everything changed. But Jesus did not let her get away. You see, she'd followed him through the crowd and now he follows her through the crowd. Like some first century wears Waldo, he looked high and low and the crowd parts and he, and he brushes past people. He's looking for this one person. It, it 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 says in the passage that he kept looking around to see who had done it. Like this is some kind of a crime. Who did it? Who touched me? Jesus wasn't going to give up. And so the woman realizes that that there's no point in in running away, that Jesus is not going to let her get away. And so she quits running and comes back to the rabbi. I imagine her cowering. I imagine her fearful. She's just infected the man of God with her uncleanness. And as she's passing through the crowd, I expect that she's waiting for her neighbors to notice her and say, you, how dare you, rabbi? We had no idea she was in the crowd. If only we'd known, then we would have done something to keep her away from you. Wait. Did you touch me too? Did you touch my little kids? Have you infected us all? How dare you? But verse 33 tells us that she came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and she told him the whole truth. I love that. She told him the whole truth. I wonder what that whole truth was. I wonder what she told Jesus in front of the crowd. I wonder what she confessed to. I wonder what was the story of heartbreak, the money spent and the hopes dashed, the loneliness felt and the isolation and she probably ended it with something like this and so I heard about you that you were back in town and I had nothing to lose and so I came here and I saw that you were busy and so I just reached out and touched your robe and but Jesus interrupts her tirade of confession with a word of welcome of family, of home he says daughter daughter Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You see, she told him the whole truth, but then he tells her the whole truth. And his whole truth is way, way better and more amazing than her whole truth. See, his whole truth was this. You're home. You have a father. You are healed. This woman had learned a a lesson that we cannot put a price on. When we reach out with hands of faith and we touch Jesus, we do not um, transfer our uncleanness, our sin, over to him in the sense that he's now infected. Instead, what happens is that he transfers his righteousness to us. He takes our filthy robes and and clothes us in robes of purity this is our new identity this is our new wardrobe this is what crazy day found out last week when Jesus gave him new clothes and a right mind this is what this one woman finds out now Jesus removes our impurity and blesses us with holiness and then Jesus turns and sees Jairus having a conniption fit oh yeah Jairus where were we Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, I tell you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone or not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. The girl is dead. That time in which Jesus could have made it to Jairus' house and in which he could have healed that girl was spent on this woman. And that window is now gone. The faint glimmer of hope has just been extinguished. Could not this woman who had waited for 12 years not have waited 15 minutes more? Can you imagine Jairus' frustration? As far as Jairus is concerned, this, this, this woman has not only stolen his daughter's opportunity to be healed, but she's now infected Jesus with her uncleanness. We see here that as far as Jairus and his folks are concerned, there are some things that are beyond even the reach of Jesus. There are some things that even he cannot do, and death is the line that Jesus cannot cross as far as they are concerned. And so they they figure we're out of options. And so, the professional mourners who they probably had on standby, just in case, are now employed, it's the end of Jairus' world as he knows it, and he doesn't feel fine, his heart is broken. Just as that woman had suffered for 12 years, so Jairus' little girl had brought light and joy into his life for 12 years, and now it's all gone. And in the midst of all this, there's this word of resignation and hopelessness that's whispered into Jairus' ear, Why bother the teacher anymore? Your daughter is dead. But this whisper is overheard by Jesus, and Jesus speaks five words into Jairus' life, five words that will change everything. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Or as Michael Card words it, no fear, only faith. Jesus now takes charge. He dismisses the crowd. He brings Peter, James, and John with him. Je- Jesus goes into Jairus' house, and he kicks out all of the mourners. You imagine that? That it's a funeral, and Jesus comes in, and he kicks everyone out. But first, he declares that this girl is not dead. She's only sleeping. And So now it's only Jairus, his wife, Jesus, James, John, and Peter, and the corpse. Seven people. And Jesus touches her on her hand. And seriously, how unclean is Jesus willing to get here? First, he's touched by that woman, and now he's touching a corpse. But he doesn't seem to care. And Jesus says these words, talitha kum, which is an Aramaic phrase that Mark translates for his Roman audience as meaning, little girl, I say to you, get up. So she gets up and starts walking around and everyone is astonished and and straight away Jesus slaps a gag order on those present, saying, don't tell anyone what has happened here. And then in this lovely little eyewitness detail, Jesus tells them to feed the poor girl. Think of all that she's been through. She needs some food. Feed her. So what we see here is that we have two very different people from opposite sides of the train tracks. The, the unclean, unnamed woman who sneak attacks Jesus into healing her, and then the respectable male named religious figure who comes up to Jesus and in front of many people makes his impassioned plea. The woman who brought her needs to Jesus in secret, Jesus answers in a very public way. And then the man who brings his needs to Jesus in public, Jesus answers behind closed doors with only seven people present. We think over these past couple of weeks of the demon-possessed man last week and then the woman out of options this week and this fearful father this week. All people in need, all out of hope. And as Michael Card so wonderfully puts it, they all find exactly what they need at Jesus' feet. They all find exactly what they need at Jesus' feet. Let me say that again. They all find exactly what they need at Jesus' feet. Think about it. What do you need today? What's the thing that is your heart's cry? What reduces you to tears of frustration, of helplessness, of hopelessness? What have you spent your life's energy and maybe even finances trying to figure out to make work all to no avail? You will find exactly what you need at Jesus' feet. The demons... In Crazy Dave last week knelt before Jesus out of fear. But Dave was kneeling. Jairus knelt before this rabbi who had caused such upset in the religious ranks. Why? Because he had no other choice. Jairus came to Jesus even though Jesus was ritually unclean. uh, Because Jairus realized that when you come into contact with Jesus, your religious regulations are obsolete. And this woman... Discovered that even though all she wanted was freedom from her medical complaint, that Jesus wanted much more. He wanted a relationship. He called out to her in the crowd, drew her back, and called her his daughter. She discovered, though, even though she was expecting wrath and outrage and shock, she received and said, Grace, Jesus turned her superstition into a relationship. Daughter, he said, You are mine. She discovered that when in faith we come to Jesus, when we come into contact with Jesus, we don't contaminate him with our past and our histories and our mistakes and our sins. Instead, he purifies us. His grace is greater than our sin. They don't even compare. All of these cases were hopeless. The storm in the middle of the lake and the spirit on the other side of the lake and the sickness on this side of the lake, all was hopeless. Whether it's a storm of life or a spiritual issue or an issue of physical sickness, storm, spirit, or sickness, humanly speaking, it's all hopeless. But Jesus is Lord of all. Now, if we're honest, I think that we're all afraid of being the hopeless case, the one that Jesus cannot touch. We don't want, you know, to bother God. If there's nothing that can be done, we don't want to waste his time. We don't want to look like fools. But at that moment, Jesus whispers to us, don't be afraid, just believe. No fear, only faith. So Jesus looked at that woman in the eye and said, said daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You will find exactly what you need at the feet of Jesus, and all it needs is a little faith and a God that is worthy of your faith. Now, we have to be a bit specific because when we talk about faith, I might be saying one thing and you might be hearing another thing. Because in a moment, we're, we're going to spend time in prayer finding exactly what we need at the feet of Jesus. We're going to spend some time exercising faith. But we need to know what faith is before we do this. And so to help us work through this, I'm largely going to use the thoughts of Jonah Lynn and Dale Fincher, um, some authors, to help us understand what we mean when we talk about faith. You see, people will say faith when they mean the following. Number one, sincerely wanting something to be true, such as, I have faith that my house will sell. Sometimes that's what people mean when they talk about faith. Sometimes people will use the word faith, and they mean a blind leap, such as, when God doesn't seem to make sense, just have faith. Sometimes people will use faith, and what they mean is, is childlike gullibility, such as she has the faith of a child. Oh. Sometimes people will use the word faith, and what they mean is anything that's religious or anything spiritual. Sometimes people will say the word faith and they'll mean, well, anything that is contrary to reason. Mark Twain used to, used to tease believers saying, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Is that what you think faith is? And some people will think that faith means anything that works as a psychological crutch for the weak-minded, helping them get through life's challenges, and often it's... Um, atheists and secularists who use faith in this way? Is it just a crutch for the weak-minded, helping them get through life's challenges? But then, a judge in court might refer to an action done in good faith, which means acting on good reason. And this is the definition that, according to John Lynn and Dale Fincher, is the closest to what the Bible means when it uses the word faith. Faith means trusting what you have evidence to believe is true. The Bible does not use faith to mean childlike gullibility or a blind leap or or deep sincerity. Faith means trusting what you have evidence to believe is true. Now for some, considering that faith requires evidence is a bit of an oxymoron. But our practical interaction with God proves Otherwise, write the authors. For instance, when God answers your prayer, does your faith grow? If we say yes, then we understand that the evidence of answered prayer shows us that God is listening and loving. This increases our trust in him. Faith is the action of repeatedly and regularly trusting Jesus who claims to be the truth and allowing that interaction to spill out in love to others. And so biblical faith takes courage, not because faith is irrational, but because it often requires that we act in ways that we may feel unsafe or out of our control. Faith, according to the Bible, means trusting a God that others might not trust. Faith requires vulnerability with God and each other. You see, when we guard ourselves from vulnerable relationships, we may feel safer, but guarding ourselves also cuts us off from love. And so my final quotation is from L.L. Morris, who says this, Faith means casting oneself unreservedly on the mercy of God. Faith means laying hold on the promises of God in Christ, relying entirely on the finished work of Christ for salvation and on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God for daily strength. Faith um, Faith implies complete reliance on God and full obedience to God. And for our purposes here today, faith means kneeling at the feet of Jesus and trusting that you will find exactly what you need there. And so that's what we're we're going to do today. We're going to have the opportunity to kneel at the feet of Jesus and receive from him. Maybe we need healing. Perhaps we have something physical that is afflicting us that we've never brought to Jesus. Let's kneel down at his feet. Perhaps it's an emotional need or a mental need. Let's bring it to his feet Perhaps it's a financial need or a relational need. Let's bring it to his feet. Perhaps it's something that we've never told anyone. Well, he's ready to hear. Now, maybe you're prepared to be bold like Jairus, or perhaps you can only summon up enough courage to sneak through the crowd and secretly touch the hem of his robe. Perhaps others have said to you, you know, don't bother Jesus. Nothing can be done. Well, Jesus has heard this. And he says this, no fear, only faith. So let's kneel down at the feet of Jesus, trusting that we will find exactly what we need there. We're going to play a couple of worship songs on video. Wendy and I will be at the front and we will be praying for people who come forward. Let's give God the space and the permission to work in our lives.